Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the NoSilicast podcast, hosted at podfeed.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, October 4th, 2020, and this is show number 804. Well, this week, our guest on Chit Chat Across the Pond Light is Jill McKinley of the Start with Small Steps podcast, which you can find at smallstepspod.com. You may already know her from her many fantastic tech reviews for the NoSilicast. You would know her as Jill from the North Woods. I'm a fan of the Starts with Small Start with Small Steps podcast, and I thought it'd be fun to have Jill come on and talk about, you know, what's it like to start a podcast in 2020? All of my experience and knowledge about starting is like 15 years old, so I was kind of curious what it's like now. We talked about why she wanted to do a podcast in the first place, you know, all the fame and fortune, uh, what kind of hardware and software she's using for her recordings. There's a big surprise in there, how she makes and how she makes her podcast feed. We get into the style of, you know, do you read versus bullet points and what kind of editing do you do? And we talked about community engagement and whether to obsess on download statistics. We learned from Jill how important it is to her to always give attribution to her sources. I love talking to Jill about this because, first of all, she's so enthusiastic about her topic, and she's a total nerd. That's basically the perfect combination in my book. Look for Chit Chat Across the Pond Light in your podcatcher of choice, and of course, you can listen over at podfeed.com. And be sure to subscribe to the Start with Small Steps podcast as well. I was asked recently by a software developer to provide feedback on their redesign of their new user interface. It's a product I know really well and I rely on regularly, so I jumped at the chance to provide any feedback I could. They had a list of specific tasks they wanted me to execute, and then questions about whether I found it difficult to find the commands, was it clear and intuitive, and what could be changed to make it easier. One of the really tedious parts of doing testing like this is stopping the task and then filling out a form with your explanations. I used to do this at work for internal development projects, and the forms never had enough room to write, they didn't allow any free form explanations of the experience, and they didn't allow for me coloring outside of the lines. Because I always colored outside of the lines. I had a gift for clicking on the thing they didn't think somebody would do and finding something wrong. Anyway, this developer suggested a far different approach to giving them feedback, the feedback that they desired. They suggested that I record my screen and video from my webcam at the same time. I think the strength of this is the strength, I should say, is that they can watch my mouse as I move around, see if I hesitate or choose the wrong menu first, and at the same time catch the expression on my face. You know, am I looking pleased? Are my brows furrowed in confusion? In addition to the video, they wanted me to capture audio as well, which would give them kind of a running commentary on what I was experiencing. As you probably know, I'm quite familiar with capturing video with the high-end tool ScreenFlow, and I very often make short video clips with tools such as Parallels Parallels Toolboxes built-in screen recorder. Uh, Sometimes I use Capto, which is also a really good way to just do a quick screen capture. But when I read their suggestion to record video, I had to really decide, you know, how much do I really want to provide this feedback? Because that would mean a lot of work. It's not that hard to make the recording itself, but then you have to figure out the right compression so it's not like a terabyte in size and figure out how and where to share it with them. But in the email from the developer, they suggested I try out a free service for screen recording from Loom at loom.com. You know me, I immediately jumped to see what this Loom business was all about. Spoiler, Loom is amazing. Before I get into the details of how Loom works, the most important thing to know is what makes it stand out from all of the other screen recording options we have at our disposal. 
The big difference is that as it records your screen, it appears to be also uploading it to the Loom web service at the same time. I recorded over 15 minutes straight, and when I was finished, the video, recorded at 1080p resolution, was already available on Loom's website and ready to share with a link. That was, that was astonishing. It blew me away. Okay, now that we know how, that we care about Loom and why, let's get into those details. First, I created a free account, and I was offered a download of the app to my Mac. There's also, of course, an app for Windows, one for iOS, and one for Android. I'll get to the mobile app in a bit, but let's start with Loom on the Mac. Loom installs as a normal app, but you can also choose to see it as a menu bar app. I only had 22 menu bar apps showing and another 12 hidden on the second bartender menu, so of course I installed Loom in my menu bar. Loom launches with three large and intuitive buttons across the top, screen plus cam, screen only, and cam only. Starting with Screen Plus Cam, you get the option to choose between a full screen recording, a single window recording, or you can select an area to create a custom size. As you would expect, your next options are to choose which camera to record the view of you and which microphone. For most people, this will default to your built-in devices, but if you have a big old mic or webcam, you can choose them right here. If you choose the Screen Plus Cam option, while you're configuring Loom, it will show a small circle in the bottom left corner of your screen showing your webcam. If you hover over the circle, even while recording, you can drag that circle around to different positions on screen and even make it a larger circle or full screen. Before you start recording, you also have the option to upload a static PNG image to the display in the webcam circle instead of your live video. Once you've got one or more images uploaded, during recording, you can switch the webcam view to that static PNG. This might be a good way to maybe put up a splash screen of your company logo using the full screen option, or if you're doing a video recording and would prefer not to be live on video during just part of it, you could put up a static image. The last option is to choose the resolution of your recording. By default, it is set to auto where it chooses the highest resolution your internet connection will allow. As I was viewing it, it said, internet speed is very fast and then it said Auto 1080p. You can change the resolution from this area or in Preferences. This reveals the options to go to lower resolutions of 720, 480, or 360p. Or if you want up to 4K HD, it shows those higher resolutions as a Pro feature. Oddly, it does show 1080p HD as a Pro feature, and yet I was on a free plan and it was giving me 1080p. I'm really confused because I did get an email after I wrote up these uh, the notes on this, and it said your pro your uh, what was it like your one week demo version of the pro version is going away in a couple of days. So they said they gave me the pro version, but I didn't ever try the 4K during the pro version trial. So anyway, I was getting 1080p. I actually think this is a service I might continue to pay for. When let's explain more before we get into that. I am really glad to see that they have a business model because we definitely want to avoid the free P services, as Bart calls them, and it's good to know that Loom has that business model for this freemium service. When Loom is launched, before and during the recording, you'll see a small menu sticking to the side of your screen. This menu isn't captured in your video, but it gives you quick access to some super important tools. The first button is to stop, which of course you'll need for every video. The second button is probably equally important. It's a restart button that lets you abandon what you've recorded and start over. There's a pause button, which is super handy when you want to, you know, gather your thoughts instead of saying, or hunting around on screen for a menu. 
You've also got a trash can so you can completely abandon what you've recorded. The last button is a pencil and when chosen reveals a color palette to allow you to scribble on screen to draw the viewer's attention. Quite reasonably, the scribbles disappear after a second or two. Personally, I suggest measured usage of such a tool and use your words as much as possible to draw attention to the pertinent parts of your screen. It can be really distracting if somebody's just flailing around with a red pencil. Once you've got your camera, mic, and video resolution sorted, you simply tap the giant red start recording button and go to town. When you're finished and hit stop, nearly instantaneously your video is ready to view in your personal library at loom.com. Name your video, grab the link offered to you, and send it off. No messing around with compressing videos, no making sure you have enough online storage for the size video you just created, no waiting 45 minutes for it to upload. You are already done. Sometimes you end up with a smidge of dead air at the beginning of a recording, or you capture your mouse looking for the stop button, so Loom allows you to trim your video right through the web interface. Just trim the, you know, top and tail it, as as, uh, Don always says. You can allow or disallow comments and email notifications. You can allow emoji reactions and change whether the viewer can download your video. You automatically get access to how many views you've gotten on a video, and you can choose whether viewers can see that data as well. You can create what they call they call a call to action button that will be viewable while somebody is hovering over your video. This button can link viewers to an external site. I was recently asking some questions about using Keyboard Maestro in our Slack to add missing functionality to Apple Photos. I was testing a Keyboard Maestro script that the wonderful Mike Price made for me, and it wasn't working, so I used Loom to demonstrate the problem I was seeing. I was able to add a call to action button that linked directly back to the original question in Slack. I thought that was awesome. If you've got something recorded that you don't want the general public to be able to view, you can add a password or set the privacy to custom access where you enter the email address of the people you want to be able to view your video. Going back to the app on the Mac, there's a lot of settings, but I'd like to highlight just a few of them for you. By default, system audio is not captured, but sometimes you really would like it captured, so you can turn that on. You can highlight mouse clicks, which is a much better way of drawing attention than scribbling with a pencil. By default, the camera is set to flip. This is a tricky setting. If it's not flipped, then it's not a reflection of you. And if you try pointing at anything in your surroundings, you will get it wrong 100% of the time. On the other hand, if it is flipped, then any text will appear to be reversed. Now, this sounds unimportant for your webcam, but it can be very distracting if there's text in view, like you've got words on your shirt, for example. By default, Loom sets your Mac to Do Not Disturb right when you hit record, which I think is an awesome feature. I can't tell you how many times I've had to start over on making a recording because I forgot to turn off or turn on Do Not Disturb. Quite politely, Loom turns notifications back on when you're done recording. If you prefer to use keyboard shortcuts, Loom has you covered. They have keyboard shortcuts for toggling start and stop of recording, pause, resume of recording, cancel recording, restart recording, and draw with that colored pencil I told you not to use very much of. They've also got two keyboard shortcuts I really don't understand. You can supposedly take a selected area or full screen snapshot, but for the life of me, I was unable to invoke either of those options whether I was recording or not. It's possible I took 28 screenshots while testing this and they're buried somewhere on my disk or maybe somewhere on Loom's website, but I never found them. I only have one bad thing to say about Loom, and it's that unless I'm mistaken, it is 100% inaccessible. I can't get VoiceOver to read out loud a single thing in this menu bar app. 
Now, you might think a blind person has no need to make videos, but you couldn't, you just couldn't be more wrong. Whether I can see or not, I need to be able to demonstrate what's going on on my computer screen to send to developers or teach people or whatever darn reason a sighted person would need to do with a video, a blind person would need to use it as well. Now that I have that off my chest, I'll switch gears to tell you what I was delighted to find out, that Loom has iOS and Android apps as well. You can't record picture-in-picture like you can with a desktop app, but rather they harness two built-in features of the mobile operating system. On iOS, you can obviously record video from your camera and store it locally, but if you start from inside the Loom app, it is automatically put on the Loom website. They call it broadcasting, and I think that's how it's actually up on the website nearly instantaneously. The other built-in capability they use on iOS is the ability to do screen recording. Normally, you have to know to open Control Center and configure where Control Center is on your particular model of iPhone, select the unnamed icon that represents screen recording, enable recording of your voice, and then start recording and swipe Control Center away. With Loom, tapping on screen recording automatically launches essentially what looks just like the built-in screen recording function. However, in the middle, it shows you it's going to save that broadcast to Loom. They remind you to enable Do Not Disturb, and I'm presuming that's because Apple sandboxing probably doesn't allow them to do it for you. When you're done recording using the Loom app on iOS, you don't get many options to modify the video other than renaming, downloading, or deleting the video. To do the fancy stuff like trimming and changing access controls, you'll have to go to the website. It's not a big deal, but I wasted a bit of time searching for those capabilities in the Loom app. Sadly, I have to report that the iOS app isn't accessible for voiceover users either. A few of the elements are accidentally labeled, but the important buttons like choosing whether to record with a screen or camera are not accessible at all. You can bet that the developers of Loom will be getting a helpful suggestion for improvement from me. I find that angry finger wags are not as successful in bringing change as thorough explanations of the problem with improvement ideas. Now, I'm sold on using Loom for recording videos when I need to share them with some, someone quickly. Let's talk about the pricing, though, before I close this out. The free basic plan allows you to record and keep up to 25 videos along with the features I've described. If you go for the pro account at only 8 bucks a month, you get unlimited videos and you get more advanced recording and editing capabilities. I, I think that's bananas for 8 bucks a month. That's a really good price. If you're in education... Terry and Marty, the pro version is free. They've also got Loom for Teams, which gives you everything in pro, plus a team video library, custom branding, and more. If you're an enterprise customer, they say, let's talk. I am so happy they have a variety of well-priced paid plans to help support the free tier like this. It's a very cool service, and when it's made accessible, I'll be able to give Loom my 100% badge of approval. You can find Loom at loom.com. I don't think I can really pull a tech angle out of this next idea, but I'm going to tell you about it anyway, because it's my show and I can talk about whatever I want to. Like many people, we only meet our friends in video these days. Six of us decided early on to get together for a glass of wine and a chat every Wednesday. Because we're clever that way, we named it Wine Wednesday. Because group FaceTime chats are pretty much a dumpster fire, we gave up on that and we chose Zoom as our video chat platform. Now for the problem to be solved. Have you noticed that nearly every conversation you get into, no matter how benign at the beginning, eventually devolves into talking about the pandemic? Seriously, you can call someone to ask if they've seen the latest episode of Ted Lasso, and within a few minutes, you'll end up talking about infection rates. Just in case it slipped past your notice, 
I like to control things around me, including my interactions with people. When we started Wine Wednesday, I wanted desperately to make it the one spot in my week where for, you know, like 45 minutes or so, I wouldn't have to think about the virus. I decided that we should have a written agenda for Wine Wednesday, and I'm going to try to convince you that you should too. The rules I set up are as follows. Agenda items are to be submitted to me by noon on Wednesday. Late submissions are to be arbitrated by the entire committee before acceptance to the agenda for that evening. The agenda will be typed in Comic Sans font just to be annoying, and no subjects, even obliquely concerning the virus, will be allowed. The result of these controlling rules are that for 21 weeks, we have had a glass of wine and chatted about some really interesting subjects, a couple of which have actually saved some of us some real money. I can't recommend this idea enough, and I'm going to try to convince you by listing off some of the more enjoyable, interesting, and time-saving subjects we've covered on Wine Wednesday. Wine Wednesday started on April 22, 2020, and back then, the terrific YouTube show Some Good News with John Krasinski was still being produced. We had required homework that first week to play the episode where John hosted an online prom, an online prom for kids who weren't going to get to have their own this year. The headline in the agenda was entitled, I'm Not Crying, You're Crying. One week, a member had a squirrel scale the wall on the front of his house, and he described the odd situation of having a squirrel stuck on your balcony and no way to help it get back down. There was no redeeming value to this particular discussion, but it was pretty entertaining. The most productive discussion we've had so far was when one member asked to add an agenda item to discuss how did you decide whether or not to have earthquake insurance. Now, this specific type of insurance may not apply to you, but you can replace it earthquake with flood, fire, tornado, famine, whatever natural disaster is likely to take down your house. As we discussed the logic each of us had applied to this problem of deciding about whether or not to have earthquake insurance, our squirrel house owner explained that since the dwelling on his property was only assessed at being about 30 to 40% of the value of his entire property, he figured it was better to just self-insure. That percentage seemed logical since the property values in California beach cities are driven mostly by the land and that land's proximity to the ocean. But Steve and I were pretty sure our percentage was much higher on our insurance. We reviewed our policy and discovered that on our policy, it had the dwelling at more like 85% of the value of the entire property. Steve called our insurance adjuster, who's not really the sharpest spoon in the drawer, if you know what I mean. And luckily, he got his brother instead. The brother reviewed the numbers and he agreed. He said this wasn't right at all. He gave us a a way to describe a lot of details about the dwelling so he could give us a new quote. The price in our earthquake insurance came down $600 per year as a result. And get this, our homeowner's insurance also had the assessed value of the house as way too high of a percentage, so it dropped another $600 per year. So we had a savings of $1,200 per year because Wine Wednesday was talking about interesting things. I bought three really nice bottles of wine and delivered them to the homes of the members of Wine Wednesday in appreciation. The next subject I want to talk about was called the Moo Bag Arch of Play-Doh. That's what it read in the show notes. I'm sorry, in the uh, agenda. I say show notes too often, don't I? Anyway, in the agenda, the Moo Bag Arch of Play-Doh. This was a play on words from a game of charades we played over 40 years ago. Steve and I were supposed to be keeping an eye on his much younger sister while his parents were away on vacation. 
We were friends with a couple of the members of Wine Wednesday way back then, so we invited them over to keep us company. We played charades, the boys against the girls, and the clues had to be written out ahead of time. One of the guys quite obnoxiously put in the clue for the girls to do the book The Gulag Archipelago, and Steve's 12-year-old sister drew that card. Of course, she had no idea that these were basically like real words, but darn it if she didn't sound out every single syllable by syllable until we guessed the answer. I think it took about a half hour, but it was pretty hilarious. Anyway, the reason the Moobag Arch of Play-Doh was on the agenda was because it was a request for each of us to give a one-minute review of a book we'd read recently. We learned a lot about other fun books people were reading. Another great cost savings discussion came up when one member showed off her new glasses and told us about Zenny Optical. You may remember me doing a review of Zenny Optical and how I got glasses for less than a sixth the price of my normal glasses. This idea, like the insurance changes, will be a gift that keeps on giving. Would we have ever learned about these things if we'd been allowed to talk about the p- pandemic? I submit that we would not. We had a, uh, let's see, we had an agenda item entitled Nuts or Not. We had a heated debate on the merits of zucchini bread versus banana bread and the merits of nuts in our fruit or vegetable breads. I think in the end, a compromise was reached and we all agreed on chocolate chips as what should be in kind of in any kind of tasty bread. As we are an aged bunch, one week we discussed how to decide when to take Social Security. Of course, there's the fear of whether it'll go away before we get our grubby hands on the money, but there's also the math on making the decision. Luckily, one of our members is a mathematician and an engineer, and she had modeled the various age options with assumptions for likely investment percentages and was able to advise us on how to make our own model. For privacy reasons, I won't discuss our decision, but it was very helpful to have people against which to bou- against whom to bounce these ideas and to test our own assumptions. Perhaps this next subject danced a bit too close to discussing the pandemic, but it was a very productive context. We shared our thoughts and concerns on when it would be safe to go back to having preventative medical checkups. This was back in June, and back then none of us had the nerve to go to a physical, a well-woman checkup, an ophthalmology, colonoscopy, or dentist appointments. I don't know if it would have been safe back then, but again, having other people with science backgrounds with whom we could discuss these risks, benefits, and what questions to ask before agreeing to go in was fantastic. Also being science-minded, we all love a good comet. When Comet Neowise came by, we all went out to watch on the same night at the same time and texted each other while we were watching it. It was a wonderful shared experience, even if we weren't technically standing next to each other. It was important to us to share this experience because we'd seen Comet Kohotek, Halley's Comet, and Hailbop together over the years. Maybe it's because I've been locked up in my house for a long time with nowhere to go, but I find myself thinking often about my favorite appliance, tools, and kitchen gadgets. We've had a few discussions where we each pick a favorite in a category. We've talked about our vacuums, I know that for sure. Probably the most enjoyable one was when our squirrel housing friend showed us his new microwave popcorn bowl, the Popco. Popco is a flexible silicone bowl that collapses down to be only about two to three inches tall, so it's easy to put away. It has a lid that you drop inside. It's, a again, a silicone you know, rubbery sort of lid, and you drop it inside, and then it slowly rises as the popcorn pops. This was such a popular topic that we all bought our own popcos all in different colors. 14 bucks was a small price to pay to find a new way to make popcorn. I got to tell you, the instructions say it doesn't need any oil to pop, 
While that's true, I find that without oil, it's really hard to get the salt to stick. I tried olive oil in my popco, and it worked just fine. I still like making popcorn with olive oil in a pot on the stove a little bit better, but I took my popco to Lindsay's where she has an electric stove, and I haven't been able to make popcorn there. You see, my little buddy Forbes and I, we love our popcorn, so now we can make popcorn anytime we want. After listening to Tom Merritt's awesome episode of Know a Little More when he explained 5G, I was able to give a report out to the group on which is better, LTE or 5G. Nope, I'm not going to tell you the answer. You should go listen to Tom explain it because it's fascinating and surprising. I don't just know a little more about 5G, I know a lot more about 5G. One of our members is a sort of futuristic big thinker type. One week he talked to us about connected pool tables, where he'd be able to play pool with someone in a different location. It sounds pretty far-fetched, but he described the technologies behind the idea pretty well. One week he brought up the idea of whether electric vehicles could be used to make or to buffer home electricity needs. His idea is that you charge up your electric vehicle during off-peak hours, and then the house uses that battery to run during on-peak hours. Maybe it's even available to you as a power source for the house during a power outage. Heck, the Tesla Powerwall is basically one of their car batteries set up on the side of your house, right? I thought it was a cool idea, and it was just a fun intellectual discussion. Speaking of Tesla, when Elon Musk had his Battery Day announcements, Wine Wednesday asked Steve to attend the virtual event and to do a report back to the group. Steve took his assignment very seriously. He came prepared with photos and charts to explain what he learned. Guess you can't take the program manager out of the boy. One of the risks of having other people shop for you when you're old farts like us and you're afraid to go outdoors is that you can't really control the volume of the food the shopper chooses. When we asked for asked for thick-cut pork chops one week, they brought us six. Each one was actually gluttony. I mean, we should not have eaten a whole one, so we had six. So we asked the group if anyone wanted some. Two of the members said they'd love to eat them, but only if someone cooked them for them. Turns out one of our members is a master of sous vide. This is that technology that allows you to very slowly cook meat at a very, very low temperature, and it's supposed to make the meat super tender. When we heard that one of our members was such a master, that became a discussion topic for a session of Wine Wednesday, where we discussed important topics like, how come you don't die of eating eating meat that's only been cooked at 250 degrees? After a discussion, Steve borrowed her sous vide, and he's cooked a few tasty treats for me, and was delighted enough that we bought the Anova Precision Cooker Nano from Best Buy after following a link from the wire cutter who recommended it highly. And of course, there's a link in the show notes. The Anova was only 130 bucks, and it's a pretty small cylinder, and it's even app-enabled, so you can check up on it. He's going to make me filet mignon this week, and I can't wait. One of our members, the ones with the squirrel on deck, has become obsessed with the fat bear contest going on at the Katmai National Park right now. Evidently, they've been running this contest for years. The, I, the idea is that these bears go to the river and eat salmon to fatten up for the winter. This year, there's some, an enormous number of salmon, and the bears are really getting huge. Our friend keeps the live video feed going on while he's working, just watching these animals open their mouths and wait for the fish to jump in. Anyway, the contest is at explore.org, uh, and just search for Fat Bear Week if you want to join in the fun and vote. By the way, there were 1,359 people watching the live video feed of the bears in the river while I was working on this article. I think my single favorite subject for Wine Wednesday was entitled Planned Pumpkin Parenthood. 
One of our members asked for this agenda item because she has a small plot of land in a community garden area, which she has named the farm. In her presentation, again, there's always pre- there's presentations because, you know, we're all engineers. She showed us that there are actually girl pumpkins and boy pumpkins, which we did not know. She explained that if you want to have baby pumpkins, the boy pumpkin has to get his pumpkin flower near the girl pumpkin to make the magic happen. In subsequent meetings of Wine Wednesday, she has shown us her rapidly growing baby pumpkins as a result of her meddling in nature. You could just imagine how silly we all got while she described the whole process. The bottom line is just what I said up front. If you're finding that your conversations always go down the path of doom and gloom, maybe you want to start making agendas for your video calls with your friends. I've learned a lot, I've laughed a lot, and even saved a lot of money as a result. Also, we drink wine. Well, it's that time of the week again. It's time for Security Bits with Bart Bouchot. A week late, but not a dollar short, right, Bart? (laughs) (laughs) Well, strangely enough, lengthwise, it's no longer than normal. So I may have missed a third of the news. (laughs) You have the feeling something must be missing if it's not long? It, it it just seems like I was expecting this to be a, an epic essay of a thing, and the scroll bars are civilized sized. All right, well, good. Looks like you gave me something to chew on too, and I always like those. I did. I I, I actually padded out one bit to make it into a nice security medium. But before we get to that, I want to say something. I, a to you and B to the audience. You did something last week that blew my socks off. What's that? You told the amazingness of the castaways to go to my Patreon. <laughs> I didn't, just out of the blue, I was just listening to the podcast, utterly enjoying the podcast, and you gave me the best plug I have ever heard. And it was just amazing. And my inbox lit up this week with Patreon. Yay! All right. Good job, No Silly Castaways. That's great. So well, the No Silly Castaways rock as much as you do. <laughs> yeah, you know, I do actually say it on the end of every programming by stealth. I, I say not to not to go to my Patreon, go to Bart's, because Bart does all of the heavy lifting. But I realized I rarely say it on the NoSilicast, where they get the value of security bits. And like I've always said, I'm pretty sure if I split security bits off as a show, nobody would listen to the NoSilicast. They'd only listen to security bits. So. I would. I always <laughs> fast forward by security bits. <laughs> Well, that's good. Well, I'm glad. I'm glad. No, Silla Castaways, you rock. Thanks for supporting yeah. Bart. And like we both say, we're not trying to make fame and fortune. Well, fame, sure. But fortune, no. <laughs> uh, we're just trying to pay the bills around here, right? And I, I always loved your description that you started podcasting so that people who cared would be listening instead of people who didn't care. Yeah. That's me. That's me. I want to talk about this stuff and preferably to someone who's not my darling beloved. <laughs> <laughs> they get tired of us after a while, right? <laughs> they do. They do. <laughs> Anyway, into our feedback section. Um, all good news in terms of the COVID app rollouts. No more countries trying to do silly things like not use the Apple Google API. Instead, we have Pennsylvania joining the Apple Club. We have uh, Wales and England joining the Apple Club. We have mm. a charming little country called Belgium. Oh, I joining. smiled really big when I heard Belgium. So now you've got Belgium and Ireland. You're, you're gold, right? That's done, yeah. Uh, Actually, and Northern Ireland is done too, which is important. And also New York and New Jersey in uh, your neck of the woods in the broadest possible terms. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, within 3,000 miles, right? (laughs) Yeah, contiguous landmass. Um, California is the weirdest 
absentee thing here. Like, why are they, why are we not? The governor can just go up the road and say, guys, give me a hand. <laughs> Yoo-hoo. Yeah, I mean, use a string phone. I don't. The go- your governor is not a Luddite. I mm-hmm. don't get it. Yeah. I don't get it. Yeah. Do not Anyways, understand. Strange one. Um, our other regular never-ending story is, of course, the ever-evolving world of social media. Um, Facebook threw the rattle out of the pram a little bit. Um, <laughs> so Ireland is where Facebook is headquartered in Europe, which means that from a GDPR point of view, it is the Irish regulators that matter to Facebook. And a few weeks ago, Facebook were told by the Irish regulators that they couldn't keep sending their data to American servers. They had to keep their European data in Europe because they weren't compliant with GDPR. I was going to say, I thought that happened a long t- or was settled a long time ago. Maybe, uh, maybe that was Google or Microsoft. No, that was Microsoft I'm thinking of. You're thinking, yeah, you're thinking of that. Yeah, that, that Microsoft very famously, they were doing the opposite. They had been ordered by a US court to hand stuff over and they were basically saying, nope. We're not doing it. We're going to keep our Irish state in Ireland. And I admire them greatly for it. Now, Facebook are the inverse of that. Um, So what are they saying? They they filed an affidavit with an Irish court appealing the ruling by the regulator and saying that if the regulator doesn't change their mind, they're leaving all of Europe. Oh, come on. No one believes they're leaving 400 million users or whatever behind. Oh, but what a gift to Europe if they did, though. Wouldn't that be wonderful? (laughs) Yeah. So anyway, that's what they filed. In in unrelated news, European uh, um, GNP goes up 28%. (laughs) It just might, actually. uh, Twitter stock rises 20 billion percent. Right, right. Oh, well. If you live in Illinois, you can get $400 out of of Facebook, if you like. Um, Facebook. Yeah, a few months ago, we talked about how Facebook lost a case. Illinois have a very strong anti-biometrics law. Um, and Facebook were doing facial profiling and they lost a case in Illinois. And now that class action has come to the point where you can apply to join the class. And if you meet the criteria, you get 400 bucks. Wow. How big was that payout? Because usually the lawyers take the first 12 billion and, you know, and then there's $38 or 38 cents for the people in the class action suit. That's how it usually goes, right? You hear people yeah. say, if you owned an iPhone between 20, 2007 and 2008, you're entitled to your share of the $5 million. It's like, ooh, what is it? $3.50 as iTunes credit or something. Right, right. Um, in better news, I got the bad stuff out of the way. Uh, in better news, still from Facebook, uh, Facebook have outlined their privacy policy for what they're going to do when they merge Instagram and Messenger. And actually, you're going to get a bit more control. And on the grand scheme of things, you actually get a little bit more privacy control than you had before. What? A little huh. bit. Not not earth chattering, but a little bit. Huh. So you can actually tick a tick box to say that you can't have cross-contamination, for want of a better term. So you can be on Instagram and say, I do not want to be ever contacted by a Facebooker. Hmm. Okay. So, well, it's better than I thought they would do. <laughs> Uh, Meanwhile, TikTok are proposing a global coalition against harmful content. So the concept would be that if any one of the members of the coalition find, say, some sort of abuse image, they would take the hash of that image and share it with everyone else in the group who could then search their network for that hash and proactively remove it. So whenever one network finds something horrible, they can all take it down immediately. 
And the global coalition would just be countries that choose to join this or companies? Companies. So okay. social media companies. Okay. Oh, oh, oh. So if TikTok gets a bad image, they, they give it out and then Facebook would have it and Instagram and, yeah. and WhatsApp. and Oh, that's interesting. So basically all the moderators would effectively be helping moderate everything instead of only their own thing. Hmm. I don't know if they're going to get anywhere, given that they may be booted out of the United States very shortly. But anyway, they're proposing doing that. We'll see how that works out. Like, I'm just so glad we never started talking about the TikTok, TikTok stuff, because it's a, it's a never-ending job to keep track of that one. Yeah, it's not a security story, it's not a privacy story, and it's not an Apple story, so I have been diligently avoiding it. And I approve this message. Indeed. Um, do you remember about a year ago, we talked about a an interesting device that was released at a security conference. It was a USB to lightning cable that looked like a normal USB to lightning cable, but actually contained a little Wi-Fi router inside it and a whole bunch of a little, basically a little mini computer that could be used to hack into a Mac while you charged your iPhone. Right, right, right. Yeah. It's called the OMG cable. Well, the same guy is back, only he's improved the industrial design to really shrink down the weird bit. So now it looks even more convincing. So, yay. Oh, the reason it's good. here, the reason it's here is to remind people that uh, you really should, whenever possible, use your own cables. It's just safer. Yeah, I wonder how many people end up using other cables. You know, I'm not in the workforce anymore, but I imagine if you go to a, a vendor site and you got a conference room and you sit down and they got a bunch of lightning cables sticking out for everybody to charge their devices or something like that. I don't know. I think a lot of people would, yeah. And we know that a, like for years, a USB power block has been potentially dodgy, which is why we were able to buy the little um, charge-only shoes to stick over a USB port so that data couldn't run across the cable by mistake. Uh, but if the cable itself is malicious, then your little data shoe isn't going to protect you. Right, right. Actually, no, if I went on the Mac side instead of the iPhone side, hmm, might do, might do. Anyway, uh, the other story that made a lot of news is that Check Rain, the most recent high-profile jailbreak of iOS, they, they have a beta version out, which doesn't just jailbreak iPhones and iPads. It also jailbreaks another iOS-like piece of tech, the T2 chip that is inside many modern Macs. Because if you have a Touch Bar Mac, there's actually two operating systems running. There's Mac OS on the Mac itself, and there's an iOS-like operating system running on the Touch Bar. And even if you have a MacBook Air that has a Touch ID sensor, there is actually a little power, P a little um, Apple chip running its own operating system powering the Touch ID sensor. Okay. Now, you might immediately assume this would be a horrific story, but actually, no. It just Because the, the hardware protections in the secure enclave are still the hardware protections in the secure enclave. So basically, this is the only thing that it seems to do at the moment is allow you to customize the touch bar <laughs> to run your own whatever you want on the touch bar screen. Okay, fine. Jailbreak away. Um, no, so, so no security. You always talk about how there's layers and you're and it's multiplying those layers together and they're, they're separate lines of defense. So maybe they've they've broached the river, but they, they the moat, but they haven't gotten to the through the wall yet. I guess the best way to describe it is so your touch ID stuff was protected by two things: security by obscurity and actual security. The obscurity is now gone. Oh, okay. But the actual security is still there, which isn't bad. I'll take it. 
So the sign in front of the castle that said, this is not the castle you're looking for. <laughs> they've broached that, but they've still got the moat and the, and the wall. Okay. Exactly. That's a love that. Bit of Star Wars. Wait, um, Star Wars. Oh, yeah, it was Star Wars. I, for some reason, I had Monty Python in the picture, too, because they were throwing ca- cows over the wall or something, too. Oh, God, yeah. I, I had to tell my mom about that recently because I took a photograph of some elderberries. Ah, uh, so you had to tell uh, her the joke? <laughs> yeah, I was like, yeah, your mother was a hamster and your father smelled dove. And I sent the photo and she just said back, what? <laughs> oh, no. So I, I sent her a YouTube link and she just sent back three lol emojis and nothing else. I was like, <laughs> yeah. okay, mission accomplished. She got it. By the way, I'm I'm pretty sure uh, there was a character on the Dick Van Dyke show who drank elderberry wine. So I always think of that when I hear elderberries. It's delicious. I love elderberry. Gorgeous, gorgeous. Anyway, <laughs> we have a deep dive, which I padded out a bit since we have so little news. You probably heard of the latest bug with a fancy name, Zero Logon. And this this is... Oh, I seem to have somehow managed to delete my fire extinguisher rep- uh, icon I'd meant to put in front of it. Um, because this is simultaneously a gigantic big deal and nothing for our listeners to worry about, which is okay. nice. By the way, I have not heard of it. I know nothing about this. Okay, so in corporate IT, this is causing mass panic. Okay. Uh, basically, a bug has been found in something called the Microsoft Windows NetLogon Remote Protocol, or MSN or PC. Um, and it misuses, basically, Microsoft have a spec for this thing we'll talk about in a moment, and it uses genuinely secure encryption wrong. So the encryption algorithm is good. It's AES CFB8, so it's one of the AES encryption standards, good encryption, but they misused it. And when you misuse encryption, it doesn't work properly. It's like mm. having, you know, the world's best... To have your seatbelt, then you put it behind you. Okay. You know, it's a perfectly good seatbelt, but it ain't doing what it's supposed to do. So some cryptographic ciphers need an input of some randomness before they're safe to use. So you basically prime the pump with a piece of random data, and then you start to run your real data through it, and then your real data is protected. And so each time you use it, the random data is different. So if you send the same data multiple times, you won't get the same output which would allow a replay attack. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Uh, if you send the same random input, it comes out with different output? No, the other way around. So the, the random input is always random. Okay. So it goes first, and that gives you the protection that even if you send the same actual data through multiple times, it'll be different every time. Okay, all right. And a lot of computer stuff is very formulaic, right? The the structure of a logon packet to a Windows domain is extremely self-similar. In fact, every time you log on, you're setting the same data, basically. So if you don't initialize the encryption properly, you have yourself a giant big problem. And unfortunately, due to a whoopsie in the specification, the random data is always all zeros. <laughs> wait a minute, wait a minute. In the spec? It's always zeros? If you follow the spec, it the spec doesn't say use always zeros, but the implication of following the spec, a side effect of the way the spec is written is that that is what will happen. So if you read it uh, with the, uh, not with the spirit, but with the letter of what it says? Yeah. And it's a subtle one. It's basically, it's an implication rather than an intention. But basically the spec doesn't, properly do things and the end result is you can reliably force the 
It's called an initialization vector, the first bit of random glop. It'll just always be zeros. So whose spec is this? Is this Microsoft spec? Microsoft spec. Okay, so Microsoft wrote the spec, Microsoft followed the spec, and followed the letter of the spec. Yeah. So that gives us the zero part of zero logon, right? It's a bunch of zeros in the initialization vector. So the next question then is, so what does MSN or PC do? And more importantly, what does it matter if if MSN or PC is broken? Well, thanks to U.S. antitrust law and some diligent people in the Department of Justice over in your little country, Microsoft were forced to publish the specifications for the protocols that power Windows. I believe it was Novell who got us here back in the days when netware was a thing. Um, But it's still with us and it still has advantages. So the fact that our Macs play nice in a corporate environment is because Microsoft have to publish these specs. Apple don't have to guess how you join a domain, even though you're not a Windows PC, you can just join a Mac to a domain because the code, the spec is public. And NAS device can present itself as a Windows file server because the spec is public. Linux machines can actually be domain controllers on a Windows network using Samba because Samba didn't have to guess at the protocol. They could read the spec and follow it. So that's all a good thing. That's all a good thing. Also means I could go read the spec. So... Microsoft say in the introduction to the spec, MSN RPC is an RPC interface that is used for user and machine authentication on domain-based networks. That's already bad. To Wait, replicate why is that bad? User and machine authentication. So we why have a protocol that? that's broken that is used for user and machine authentication oh. on domain-based networks. Oh, okay. Okay. Sorry. This isn't the root cause. This is the effect you're talking about. Okay. It's the effect. Yeah. All right. It's also used to replicate the user account database for operating systems earlier than Windows 2000 for backup domain controllers, to maintain domain relationships from the members of a domain to a domain controller, among domain controllers, and between domain controllers across domains, and to discover and manage these relationships. Basically, this protocol is what makes a Windows domain exist. Yeah, every every piece of the web of that, right? Every piece of the web of that. So this is the protocol that is a Windows domain. Because of this whoopsie in the initialization vector, anyone who can basically talk to any member of a Windows domain over the network can impersonate any computer on the domain including a domain controller. So your smart light bulb can pretend to be a domain controller and because of this problem with the zeros, be believed. So I'm really curious how you're going to get us back to having a fire extinguisher that this isn't as big as I know, it sounds. I know. Right now, didn't that sound so good, Bart? No, it's not. Um, so you can pretend to be a domain controller, which means you can synchronize out some account updates, including, say, a new password for domain admin accounts. And we know the hash for the null domain admin account. So we know the hash for an admin account or an admin password of no password. So you can just push out a new password for the domain admin that says there is no password in this domain. And so your smart light bulb has just become root, effectively domain level administrator access, which is like network level root on a Windows domain. Okay. So that's pretty darn bad. So 
That's what gives us the logon part of the zero logon. So we have all zeros leading to zero need for any sort of logon. Pretty darn scary. Uh, but it gets worse before I put this fire out. <laughs> you don't believe me. You nope. The listeners don't know what you video these days, but the look of skepticism on Alison's face is wonderful. Is it nope? Nope. So a lot of security vulnerabilities are the result of human error in implementing a spec, right? You tell the programmers, here's what we need, and they try to make that be so, but they make a boo-boo and the code doesn't actually do what the spec says. But there's another type of bug where the spec is wrong and the program is fine. Well, this is a spec one, which means that this vulnerability doesn't just exist in Windows, it also exists in Samba and indeed anyone else who's written their own. Oh, because they copied and pasted the spec? Well, no, they implemented the spec, right? So the spec says do X, Y, and Z. So they wrote in whatever programming language, C or whatever, they wrote, they diligently made the same mistake Microsoft made because the spec said so. They basically have a map that leads them off a cliff and they all followed it off the cliff. Now, of course, in retrospect, that sounds stupid, but why would you not notice, go, wait a minute, if I shove all zeros in, why would that give me a different effect? But remember, the spec doesn't say to shove all zeros in. The spec says a whole bunch of other stuff, and the end result is that what's in the register at the time is all zeros. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought it had a section where it said, like, for example, if you push in all zeros, like in text it said that. No, you're saying following the spec creates this set of all zeros. I got you. Okay, that, that makes them sound a lot less dumb for following it. Correct. And also Microsoft a lot less dumb for writing it. It's It's basically... An implication they no one thought of, as opposed to an express, do this dumb thing. Hmm. Okay. That's why it sat there in the spec for the last at least 20 years, because this goes back to at least Windows 2000. Wow. It's kind of weird to say that Windows 2000 is 20 years old, but leaving that aside. <laughs> um, so, wait, there's even more. <laughs> Microsoft is seeing active exploitation of this bug in the wild. So why am I saying there's a fire extinguisher in this? Yeah. Well, the first thing is, this is actually a big deal for corporate IT. So if you work in corporate IT, you know about this. Or if you don't know about this, you have yourself a gigantic problem. But you probably know about this. Okay, okay. So there is a fire, or there is no fire extinguisher if you're actually running a corporate IT network. Um, There probably is, actually, because of point number one and the three good reasons you don't need to panic. Okay. So point number one is this bug was responsibly disclosed. So we found out about it in September. It was patched in August. Oh. Oh. So Microsoft's August patch Tuesday fixed this. The security researchers and Microsoft had come to an agreement where they wouldn't say anything until September. In fact, they didn't say anything until after the September patch Tuesday had been and gone as well. Just in case. (laughs) Yeah. The Samba people have also released a patch before the security researchers made their announcement. So anyone with a good patch management cycle basically heard about a thing that would have been a problem, but their machines have all patched themselves, so it's grand. But in a large corporate IT network, you don't run auto-updates. You don't run every single patch every single time. Uh, That is changing. Um, Okay, yeah, my information's seven years old now. I am happy to say that I know of a place where auditors came in, and the first thing they said was, why is there not automatic updates every month? Oh, wow. Like, you have to do that. Okay. Yeah, uh, yeah, audit requirements. You must, which is great. Like, when the auditors come in and say, you must do the thing you want to do anyway, it's like, yes, thank you, auditors. Well, so, (laughs) yeah, right. The sysadmin's friend in this case. The reason I'm I'm asking the question is there was just a, uh, I forget which country it was. It was someplace in Europe where uh, a woman died 
because the hospital where she was uh, where she was hadn't patched a particular vulnerability where the where the patch was available. I, I want to say it was like an Oracle patch, and I thought it was this one, Allison? Oh, was, was it? it maybe no, maybe it was something else. I know, I know. Stephen Leo talked about it. Yeah, and well, I anyway, she, this I'll one, finish but. the plot and then we can get into it. But she, uh, so they got rans- a ransomware attack as a result. And so she was unable to get the medical care she needed. They moved her to another hospital and she died. And the, and the, the people who did the uh, attack hadn't intended to attack that hospital. They were trying to attack a university that was right next door. Somehow they like got the IP address off by one or something. I don't know how you accidentally... It was some really obscure thing, but they were they were up on um, manslaughter charges, I think, or something along those lines, because it was as a result of their action that she died. But the wow. the question was was the hospital liable because they didn't apply the patch? So that yeah. I mean, this is not not to be messed with here, right? You're right. It's not academic because there's a duty of care on the hospital, right? And hacking is illegal. Yeah. And extortion is illegal, but there's also but they didn't a, try to kill anyone. But there's also uh, a duty of care of do you take down the 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 network to do a patch when somebody else might die as a result? You know, those are those are tough decisions. They really are. Um, and I guess one thing that a lot of in, in Europe we have a lot of teaching hospitals where a university would run a hospital. Hmm. Oh, so maybe that's it. Might be something so like that. Yeah, they might even share the same IP space. Yeah, maybe that if they was were it. one was part of the other. So that could yeah, be so you know, not every place always does the patches, especially where the the risk of screwing it up when you run the patch is high. You're less likely to do um, automatic yeah. patches, right? Yeah, and I know in the NHS when they were hacked with the the not patch ransomware, they had a problem where getting a medical device certified is hard. Getting a medical device certified takes years, and so a lot of their devices had to run Windows XP. <laughs> Right, right. Because of the CT scanner or whatever. Yeah. So yeah. The, the industry has a bit of learning to do. Okay, so... Wait, that was step one. one. Number two. Step, yeah, so reason number one, most people don't have to panic. And certainly not our listeners, right? Our listeners can apply software updates automatically. Right. Reason number two, this bug affects Windows domains. Most of our home users are not running Windows domains. So this is utterly irrelevant that you can pretend to be a domain controller on a non-existent domain and then you can get domain access on a non-existent domain. Okay. So again, it doesn't cover our home users. And it also doesn't affect our NAS devices because they tend not to have the domain membership as a feature. Sure, they use Windows file sharing, but they don't use it as a domain. You don't join your NAS to your home domain because you don't have a home domain. Okay. I noticed in the and show even, notes you called it Soho NAS. What is Soho? Small office, home office. Oh, okay. Maybe that's fallen out of fashion. That was always the thing. It's like that halfway house between corporate and home. Right, right. You know, that sort of five-person company would be kind of sort of or Soho. Or nerd house. Or nerd house. A lot of nerd houses would be Soho, yeah. Uh, so they would tend not to have domain join either. But if you go to the high end, to the, to the SAN instead of a NAS, which is storage area network, they would be domain joined and stuff. So they probably would have to do software updates. But again, they're major vendors, so they probably have that in hand. Okay. And the last thing is that most home users are behind a NAT router, so a router. So a direct attack would be very difficult against the home user. However, 
your IoT could be a backdoor, right? If there's a dodgy light bulb that phones home, then that phoning home could allow a bad guy in. And once they're in, they could attack it. But you don't have a domain anyway. So basically, for us, patchy, patchy, patch, patch, <laughs> and you're fine. Which is why there's a fire extinguisher. Good, 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 good. Yeah. Okay, so that's our our quite deep security medium. Um, but as I say, there's not really that much else happening. Uh, in terms of action alerts, Apple have patched pretty much everything. Uh, they did have to patch some stuff twice. They uh, pulled Safari 14 from Mojave, then fixed it again. So it's back out. Yeah, I heard some vague thing. It caused some sort of problems, the initial one in Mojave. Yeah, it was so short that basically in the time when I came to my RSS feed, the two stories were about five apart. So I already saw the other headline. I didn't really spend a lot of time on the first one. It's like, oh, they briefly, oh, it's back. Okay, good. So, yeah. Um, what is notable is that Safari 14 has added a whole bunch of new privacy features. So there's a nice explainer from Intego linked in the show notes if you want to dig a little bit deeper and see what you got for free. Um in the new, because even though you're not on, even if you don't move to uh, Big Sur, we all get Safari 14. So we all right, actually get right. these extra features. Uh, and Instagram have patched uh, a fairly nasty bug in their smartphone client. So, you know, your smartphone probably updates itself. But if you have one of those, you know, you know, that counter is sitting at like 56 apps. Maybe <laughs> if Instagram is one of them, let it do its thing. <laughs> Well, right after we talked about how we do automatic updates, we're like, yeah, but ugh, ugh, my watch takes too long. I don't want to. <laughs> Actually, mine, I have mindset to do it overnight, and it regularly surprises me in the morning when it says, good morning. By the way, I've updated myself. It's like, oh, thank you. That oh, that is nice. That's nice of you. Uh, worthy warnings, just the one. Um, if you're a user of a thing, a, I think it's a gaming site called Razer. Uh, they had a fairly substantial uh, data breach. Uh, 100,000 plus gamers lost their personal info. So if you're a user of that site, you'll know what it is. And then you should go read the story linked in the show notes. Well, we haven't had one of those in a long time. That used to be <laughs> your weekly, you know, you'd have five. I may have raised the bar on the oh, other Got so. tired of them. <laughs> well, it's more a case of what value is there in telling people the same thing over and over again. It's just sometimes they rise up a little bit higher. Basically, okay. the bar went down a bit higher. Okay. Notable news then, uh, Cloudflare have launched a free privacy-first alternative to Google Analytics. Hmm. So if you want analytics, not for the purpose of ads, but for the purpose of managing your website, of figuring out where users get confused, where users get slowed down, which is the other use of analytics, now you can have the good type of analytics without the bad type of analytics, thanks to Cloudflare. Yeah, I'm glad you brought this up again. I had heard about it, and um, I do use Google Analytics, and it's mostly just to look at uh, downloads. And um, they've recently changed the software, the plugin for WordPress, where it's really annoying. It's like always telling me I need to update things, and then I go, and it's not an update. It's trying to sell me something, and it's it's oh. really getting kind of annoying. I may be mixing that up with an SEO plugin now that I think about it. But anyway, but I do not use Google Analytics to track you. I use Google Analytics to find out whether anybody's reading the blog. That is my purpose yeah. in it. Um, this so week, this is perfect. 
Yeah. Uh, this week's Chit Chat Across the Pond was with uh, Jill McKinley, who just started a new podcast, talking about what it's like to start a new podcast. And I told her, I asked her, was she already obsessing about the metrics? And she was like, yeah, absolutely. You know, every three minutes I'm looking at it. And I said, the important thing to know about these analytics is they were always depressing. Because in, in the world of podcasting, when you look at, when you look at uh, downloads, if you look at the audio downloads, for example, they're always going down. Because right this instant, there's somebody who has yet to download that particular episode. So no matter when I look at them, they're horrible. And then I look and then it was fine back when I was looking at it before because they just had, you know, all the listens hadn't come in. Um, but especially right now with people not, or, you know, at home and not commuting and everything, there's so much not going on right now that you yeah, just don't even look. You know? Yeah. If you're having fun, yeah. do it. Yeah. Do you know, I actually don't have access because... The Let's Talk stuff is hosted by uh, the the MyMac Podcasting Network. I actually don't have access to stats, mm -hmm. and I have never considered it a problem. <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting way to look at it. Again, because what do we do? We're talking about something we would love to be sitting around talking about anyway. If people are listening that enjoy it, that's great. We don't want to hear about the people who aren't, because yeah. they don't want to. That's fine. Yeah, I mean, I used to teach. If I had a classroom of 100 people, that was a big room well filled. If there are 100 listeners to my podcast, that is a big room well filled. Right. That's grand. Right, right, right. Yeah, when you look at the numbers, it is it is kind of uh, it kind of interesting to, when you compare it to real life. And guess what? This is real life. Yeah. Imagine if you were standing in front of an auditorium with 30,000 faces looking back at you. How <laughs> petrified would you be to open your mouth? <laughs> I'm glad we can't see them. And I only I'm, yeah. just, I'm just talking to my buddy Bart right now. That's all it is. Exactly. Right? Yeah. By the way, I, I just followed the Cloudflare link. Uh, there's a wait list to do it, but I just joined the wait list. I, I will be joining you on the wait list at some stage. All right. Although I, I don't care nearly as much as I should. I just kind of want to see how it works. Yeah. 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 Uh, an interesting development in the United States. So it is a true fact. Sorry, Jill. Uh, it is a true fact that... Um, <laughs> it is a fact that is true. <laughs> that's also reductive. Um, my personal PIN number is... Um, <laughs> I've never heard it done that badly. That's awesome. <laughs> it is true that America has uh, economic sanctions against a bunch of malicious nations. It is also true that a lot of ransomware comes from those malicious nations. If you pay the ransom, you are breaking the sanctions. You are sending money to regimes that are sanctioned. Oh, that's and interesting. Yes, and the U.S. government is now warning companies that if you do that, they may come after you for breach of sanctions. So paying the ransom could cost you a lot. <laughs> <laughs> okay, talked about darned if you do, darned if you don't. Wow. It's a pretty good reason to have good backups. Yeah. It's just, you know, and I, I think... The idea here is that ransomware is too lucrative a business. They get paid too much too often. And so to try and nip it in the bud, make it not pay so good. I think that's the logic here. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to be snarky. It's probably because Uncle Sam wants taxes from that money or something, right? <laughs> well, that is true. I mean, if, if, I, were, if I were sitting in the uh, IRS, I would be going, well, do we send the money to our enemies or do we send the money to me? <laughs> me! <laughs> exactly. 
Okay, well, that's that's it in terms of news, actually. So we're into the fun stuff. So top tips. Um, there is a fun website you can go to called uh, Blacklight. You type in a URL and it tells you what all the ad trackers are. Now, if you have Safari 14, you can do that just in Safari. But if you don't, you can just go to this website linked in the show notes. Pop in the so site and it'll tell black you. Blacklight, like, like you go into a hotel room with a blacklight and look for all the germs just to creep exactly. you out? Exactly. Uh oh, better exactly. go check podfeet.com real quick. Well, I checked bartb.e and I'm good, which I knew I was, unless I was hacked, uh, but I'm good. Yeah, I occasionally have a few little things like the. Uh, um, the old now Amazon links would be trackers. Hey, that, that okay. No ad trackers me. found on this site. Hey. No third party cookies. Go. No tracking that evades cookie blockers. Session recording service is not there. We did not find this website capturing keystrokes. Facebook pixel not found on this website. Google, Google Analytics remarketing audiences feature not found. So you have analytics, but not the scary part. Yeah. Okay, cool. Excellent. There you go. So that's a nice little top tip. Um, in terms of excellent explainers, then, um, there is a superb episode of the Checklist podcast uh, that Ken Ray does, describing in detail iOS 14's privacy features. So if you oh. just got iOS 14 on your device, why not figure out what it's done for you lately? Ooh, adding that uh, particular episode to my playlist right now. That sounds fun. The Checklist is really good. It is. It's one of those podcasts I dip into every now and then. And as you're about to discover, I recently did a bit of a binge right caught up on two months worth. Ah. <laughs> so I have a few more to recommend at the moment under different headings. OK. Uh, also, a fun article over on the uh, Intego Mac Security blog, How the Internet Works. I know we covered it on Taming the Terminal, but it's nice to see a nice short summary by someone else. So you can get Kirk McElhern's take on how the Internet works. Nice. Relatively short post, given the topic. <laughs> now to be brief on it yes yes it is in terms of interesting insights then um i'm going to start off with some not so good news so rob walsh uh from uh he's oh, libsyn he from thank you rob walsh of libsyn fame has started to raise awareness of something i hadn't even thought about which is privacy invading trackers embedded in some podcasts how do you do that in the well, rss feed it's all over HTTP, so if you put a tracking pixel into the show notes, your client is just going to do a web request to the tracking pixel. Oh, wait. So how do you put a pixel in a uh, text file? Well, it's not a text file because show notes can have HTML tags in them. Oh, I so guess I think of that as text, pages. but I guess you're right. It's text plus. Yeah. So I don't have all the exact details, but basically you can use the evils of the internet through show notes to start doing evil That's stuff. Mean. And so it is mean. So he's basically raising awareness uh, in the hope that we can nip this in the bud by basically making it easy to spot which podcasts are doing it and which podcasts aren't. Yeah. How would you tell um, which ones are versus maybe I've got a link to an image that's helpful? Well, there are websites now that will tell you, and also some of the third-party podcasting apps are starting to show you tracking icons underneath, because they, what they can do ranges from scary to, I guess I understand. So one of the most benign, least malicious, <laughs> is um, when you download the podcast, they use your IP address to figure out where in the world you are, and they serve you a different ad depending on where you are. Okay. So that's the least scary kind of tracking because that's not cross that's not cross podcaster. I think that's just, you know, targeted advertising of a sort. 
So they, the, the, the app will flag that with an orange and then uh, anything more than that will get flagged with a red. But, you know, the vast majority of, of, of sort of regular podcasts are not tracking you, but some of the high profile ones are. Huh. So could you do it in album art, like chapter art? I would imagine that's definitely going to be a part of it, yeah, because that's an image that you go off and fetch. Right, and you expect it to happen. But how do they know that they're tracking versus... that's? It's all happening over HTTP, so ultimately it's very web browserish, whatever's going okay, on. Okay, so however they figure it out in a web browser, they figure it out mm-hmm. here. Okay. Yeah. So anyway, it was he did an interview on the checklist, which is actually why I went to the checklist. So I went to the checklist because Ken mentioned he was talking to Rob Walsh about this tracking stuff in podcasts, and my ears went bing. Okay, gotta figure this out. So I listened to that episode, and then I also while went scrolling through and saw the iOS fourteen stuff. I was like, ooh, I listened to that. <laughs> uh, and then I also was scrolling away, and I saw the art of Mac malware Mac malware analysis with Patrick Wardle. Now, Patrick Wardle is one of those names that keeps coming up in my show notes for this segment. He's a really good Mac security researcher. So Ken interviewing Patrick Wardle, I was like, oh, I'll have a listen to that. Of course, a fantastic interview. So that's linked in the show notes as well. Oh, can I add that one too? I'm, Jeez. There you go. While I'm filling up your time, Alison, uh, another one for you. Uh, the Social Dilemma on Netflix. It's sort of a docu-drama kind of a thing. It's really good, and it does a very good job of explaining what exactly it is that has people like me so cranky at social media. Oh, okay. So, inter- so it's a documentary, but done in a dramatic style? Like, sort of... It, no, it's, it's a documentary that cuts to a fictitious family, illustrating the point. Oh, okay. So you you see an ordinary family having an ordinary life and their life gets ruined by social media, basically. And in between, you have people who used to be vice president of yada, yada, yada at Facebook telling you what Facebook get up to and people who were once high up in Twitter telling you what Twitter get up to. And it's so it explains it all very well and illustrates what it's explaining through this fictitious family. Huh. Very good idea. It's it's a Netflix original, and I have to say I, I take my hat off to them. They also managed to do a very security bits-like thing. They end on a happy note. Oh, good. Which is impressive. <laughs> yeah. But they do. Now, the next story I have in here under this um, insights and analysis section is one you pointed me at. Um, so Signal are adding some new features, and... They had security experts very worried, but I think it's okay. Let's explain really quickly. The big thing about Signal is it's been considered the gold standard for the most private way to have any conversations. So if you're a head of state, you should probably be using Signal, not, you know, WhatsApp. Exactly. So the Signal protocol is open source, and that's what's powering stuff like Facebook Messenger and stuff. But with Facebook Messenger and stuff, the key management is done by Facebook. So while the encryption is extremely secure and open source, if they give a key to your conversations to the FBI, well, then basically you've trusted someone with your house key and they've just gone and duplicated it. So that's that's the shortcoming. But Signal implement the Signal protocol themselves, and they've always had a trust no one approach where their servers contain nothing. Like their servers contain genuinely nothing. So you could... Well, you could batter down their door, take their servers, and you would have nothing. Well, they want to make it so that you don't need phone numbers to communicate over uh, Signal. 
and they want to make it that you can have contacts that are stored in Signal, not in your address book, because actually the security on your address book really isn't great. You're synchronizing it up to iCloud or to Office 365. So that's actually a weakness. So the Signal have decided to implement their own encrypted storage using the Microsoft equivalent of the secure, sorry, the Intel equivalent of the secure enclave on the servers, and they've got out of their way to secure this. But it does mean that although they're doing their absolute best to securely store stuff on Signal servers, there will be stuff stored on Signal servers. Hmm. And that had the power users, the you know, the journalists communicating with dissidents in China, those kind of people, extremely worried. Because for them, this is existential threat level stuff. So that's only 1% of the use, user base of Signal. But that 1%, it's so important to them. Exactly. So initially, when the, you sent me the story first, it was compulsory. Everyone using Signal had to use this new feature. What changed since in a little update at the bottom of the story is that it's now you can opt out. And I would say that for any of our listeners, they absolutely positively should not opt out because what Signal are doing is so much more secure than iCloud, Office 365 or Google Apps when it comes to synchronizing your contacts. Okay, hang on, hang on. This okay. is this is sort of like people saying, um, I don't need to wear a seatbelt because I'm going to die of a heart attack anyway. Those things are additive. So if you've got if you've got your contacts on your phone and they're syncing up to iCloud and you let Signal store them, then you've added to it. It's not one or the other. You'd have to oh, delete them on your phone yes, to make that but, safer. Yes, but so right now today you have a valid point. But remember, the point of this move is to enable mobile phone-less contacts and signal. So those contacts would only exist in Signal and would not need to exist as a phone number in your Outlook, etc. You could communicate with people without having to have the and. So uh, how would you how would you, you would contact them if you don't only? I'm sorry. You would add them as so Signal haven't released a mechanism for this yet. So to some extent, we're guessing whether there be some sort of QR code you scan or something, but you will be able to add someone as a contact on Signal without having their phone number. That is coming, but not okay. yet released. And okay. this feature is an enabling step towards that future. So then if, if there's a way to opt in that says, I want to keep Bart's phone number on my phone and not put it up in the cloud, uh, not put it up in Signal's cloud, but I want to get a QR code from this Chinese dissident that I'm going to interview, I want to get that through Signal. If I can do it that way, then that sounds like you've actually made it more secure. But if you have to put all of your existing contacts up there, then that doesn't seem like it's a Right, okay. So the thing. way it would work, if you want to opt out of this, the way it would work is that you would not connect your iPhone to a syncing service because you're keeping your iPhone secure. You would locally add your Signal contact using the current method, and you would sync it nowhere. Right. So that is the current model being used but you, by the you, highly secure people. But you just finished saying that you've already got your phone, your your contacts syncing up to iCloud and, and 365. No, I'm saying ordinary people who are not the 1%. Right. right. Who are not the New York Times. So the okay. New York Times right now are not syncing their contacts anywhere. So they okay. are completely local to the phone. And so right now they have total security. And if they were forced to use this feature, they would have a little bit less. 
Okay. But regular folk are different. Regular folk are syncing everything to somewhere, right? To right. iCloud backups or whatever. Because so that's why would I there. add another place that it's getting synced? Because you wouldn't be, because instead of having to use phone numbers to connect over signal, you would use this other mechanism that's about to be released and you wouldn't have them in your contact book. They wouldn't be in your iCloud. They'd but just we just talked signal. about regular people. <laughs> exactly. So regular people would be, it's not normal for me to have to give you my phone number to talk to you over instant messaging. The only reason we do that that's... with signal, if we were to use signal. Okay. I, I'm... I, I'm evidently never going to get it. It seems like it's worse for both sides to me, but I, I am obviously just missing a, a key point there. I, I think, okay, it is my opinion, and it is purely opinion, and I am entirely open to that. This is not a statement of fact. This is My opinion is that, on average, the world would be a little bit more secure. Okay. As long as you didn't also store it on your phone, which was syncing up to a cloud service. No, 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 because ordinary people... We'll, we'll use this new feature and be better off. And simultaneously, the New York Times still get to be the New York Times. So it, have your cake and eat the territory. Okay, I don't get it. Anyway, next one. <laughs> yeah, okay. It's uh, until Signal do part two of this. We won't really know. We won't really know. So when Signal release part two, we can have this conversation without me going, and they'll do something. <laughs> okay, sounds good. <laughs> Finally, uh, in here... Um, if you live in the United States, you may have noticed there's an election. I don't know if... No, I don't really? know if, no. oh, I should pay more attention. <laughs> anyway, the good people at PC Mag of all places released a lovely article explaining the technology being used to make sure every vote will count. Hmm. I'd like so to read about that. Yeah, I thought you'd enjoy that. And then finally, finally, you provided us with a wonderfully nerdy palate cleanser. <laughs> I, I wish I had the source of this, but the way I got it was sourceless. So it it is just an image. It looks like it was uh, typed on screen, but it's still, it's great. It's a shirt and it says, stay at 127.0.0.1, wear a 255.255.255.0. It made me, I got me so much nerd credit and work you would not believe. <laughs> <laughs> yes, this is this is a nerd one. So if you don't know what 127.0.0.1 is and 255.255.255.255.0, go look it up and you'll have a nice little giggle. Oh, we're being very mean to people. We're not even explaining the joke. I like oh, it. Oh, no, no. Why? Come on. Let's put in some effort here. Go, go Google it. <laughs> I was going to say, if you read the Taming the Terminal book and you read the bit about networking... <laughs> Exactly. All right. Well, we managed to uh, to flesh this one out uh, pretty well. I uh, we're going to be on next week together, I believe. We are. So good as those how much padding I'll have to find. <laughs> well, who knows? Maybe something awful will happen, Bart. And you won't have to work real hard. <laughs> oh God. Let's hope for padding. Let's hope for lots of padding. Exactly. Well, I I keep telling you the the long list of a lot of stuff doesn't entertain me near as much as learning so, one thing really really deeply or two things in a medium kind of a way. And you know something? When it comes to writing show notes, the mediums are way more fun to write. Oh, they are. Okay, good, good. So yeah, we all win. Excellent. Well, anyway, until next time, which is next week. I don't have to mince my words this time. Remember, folks, to stay patched so you stay secure. Well, that is going to wind us up for this week. Don't forget to send in your dumb questions, comments, and suggestions by emailing me at allison at podfeed.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at podfeed. Remember, everything good starts with podfeed.com. You want to become a patron? 
go over to Bart's Patreon first. But if you're, you know, you've already done it, you want to give me some money to help show the value you find out of the show, podfeet.com slash Patreon. If you want to do a one-time donation, podfeet.com slash PayPal. Want to join our Slack community? So many people came in with the uh, conversation I had last time about how cool it is. We got a whole bunch of new members. Three blind guys came in, and that was fun because they were all talking to each other about how to use the accessibility on it. It was fantastic. And uh, you get to that by going to podfeet.com slash Slack. If you still like Facebook, podfeet.com slash Facebook is still alive and kicking. And after I did that article, all of a sudden the Facebook group started taking off and everybody was having fun. So both are perfectly valid. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show, head on over to podfeet.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Lucilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.